I was so excited just to be living life again. I remember feeling the gratitude when a client cried to me on a call and said, like, you've changed my life. I'm so grateful for you. And I remember I started crying and I left and I was so happy. And it hit me in that moment. I was 28 years old. And I, I thought to myself, if this is what gratitude feels like, this is the first time you felt grateful in your whole life then. Like, it was astonishing. And I thought, man, this is what I've been searching for in a bottle and a pill and a pipe and a needle was this feeling of gratitude. And that's why I've said that like, gratitude is the antidote to life. And, and I've really ran with just trying to not only practice gratitude, but embody it and truly be grateful. And again, even today, sometimes I have to check myself and be like, dude, you have so much to be grateful for. There's 99% of my life that's great and the 1% that really sucks and I'm fixated sometimes on the 1%. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Brad Jensen, also known as the Sober Bodybuilder Online. He is the owner of Key Nutrition and co-host of the popular The Key Nutrition Podcast. Brad has an incredible recovery story and has over 10 years of sobriety. The ironic thing about Brad's story is that fitness has played both a positive and a negative role in his life, and it even led him to try painkillers for the first time when he was just 17 years old. The years that followed were filled with self-destruction and turmoil, leading to multiple incarcerations and rehab visits. After being homeless for nearly a year in 2012, Brad found himself at rock bottom after his mom bought heroin for him so that he wouldn't feel dope sick at his grandfather's funeral. His mother, filled with tears, watched Brad get high in the back of her car, and this was Brad's breaking point. Although, hours later, Brad found himself arrested once again, but this time, it was the catalyst for his sobriety. Today, he comes on the podcast to tell his riveting story from start to finish, and we talk about the highs, the lows, and everything in between. Our discussion also gets tactical as we dive into how to thrive in recovery, the power of your inner circle, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Brad Jensen to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Dude, my man, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. You got it, man. I'm excited to dive into your incredible story, which essentially like your rock bottom moment was around where your, your grandfather had died and you know, your, your mom's taking you to his funeral and she's like taking you to like buy and use heroin before going to your grandfather's funeral. And I definitely want to dive into that because that story is inspiring how you overcame everything. But I think a lot of people now, man, they're struggling. Like a lot of people, they're, they're curious about getting into recovery. They're trying to get sober. And I, I know that recovery is hard. Sobriety is challenging. It sucks. But in my experience, I think there's a few things that you can do to mitigate the toughness. You know, there's certain things I think you can do on a daily or weekly basis to help yourself out. So based on your experience and what you know now, if you were starting out fresh, other than going to meetings or having some support in that route, like what would be a few things you would make sure that you do if you started out in recovery? 
Well, I think the biggest, and by the way, you did your homework. You know the story. That's great because that's the only damn story I have. I tell people, I'm like, if you've heard me on a podcast, you're about to know what's going to come because this is the only, <laughs> only story I got. And so I appreciate that. You know, it's interesting as I kind of look, I mean, whether it's in with myself, I'll tell you one thing. And I think we, we chatted briefly before the podcast and I did do this right, but I think it's worth mentioning for other people that I see people that do not take care of their physical health when they go on a recovery journey or sobriety journey. And, and, and whether it's for, for good or for, you know, whatever they decide, I just think that's such a missing component that I'd be remiss if I didn't say I did do that. Right. You did that. Right. I see people that got 20 years sober and especially in the recovery meeting community, which I kind of take what I want, leave the rest type of thing. I see people that I'm like, that's not living to your fullest potential. Just because you haven't drank or used drugs in 20 years, like you're really overweight. Your health is really at risk. This is not like, to me, that's not freedom, right? You're still in bondage, not by drugs or alcohol, but by your physical appearance. I'll say for me, things I wish I would have done differently. And there's kind of a caveat to this. And I, this is an interesting question because I've never been asked it this way. Knowing what I know now, I think the people you choose to surround yourself with are incredibly important. And let me explain. I got sober and uh, was like, well, I have nowhere to go. And so, you know, the path I took was going to 12 step meetings. And, and I was like, okay, I need all new friends. I need all new influences. I need all new people around me. So I just assumed that being sober meant like th that was good. And at first it probably was for me. Just because somebody's sober doesn't mean they actually have a ton to offer me. Besides the fact that I'm hanging out with them, I probably won't get loaded. But what I know now today is I have some of my really good friends are in recovery. And some of the people that are really good friends in my life are not. In fact, more are not now. Now, the caveat to that is they're also not heavy drinkers. They're casual drinkers. They don't, you know... They're not out ripping lines of cocaine at the club. Like they're family men. They're focused on winning at life and not just winning in business, but winning as a dad, as a, you know, they show up in a way that I'm like, damn, I want that. And so I spent my first four or five years just only hanging out with sober people because like, that's what I thought I had to do. And I would say the last, just probably, I would even say the last three, four, three years, is when I've really expanded my network and got involved with masterminds and been around people that I'm, I see the way they're living their life. And I say, I want that. Like not only they win in the business game, but they take care of their body. They show up as a dad, they show up as a husband, like those are the people. And so I wish I would have known back then that I could also expand more out with quote unquote normal people. Again, I'm not talking about like people who are alcoholics, because they're usually not winning at life. But people were just normal, casual drinkers. I wish I would have known that, that just being sober doesn't equal this life that I strive for. Like, I thought that was kind of it. And I was like, well, at least they're sober. Kind of a piece of shit, but they're sober. And that's the justification I use for a long time, if that makes any sense. Of course. I mean, one of the things that I'll often say to people is you have to surround yourself with people that have common futures and not common past, right? But I think to take that like a layer deeper based on what you just said. Oh, I like that. You know, you have to to also not spend time with people that are just so focused on their past. And I think I don't want to judge or shame people who, you know, get caught up in that that are just, you know, they're getting sober and they're in recovery and then that's where they're at. But I think that in order to really be happy in recovery, 
You have to take care of your physical health. You have to like fill that void and, and redefine who you are as a person and find some sense of meaning in your life after you've completely like destroyed your self-image and self-worth by the destructive you know behaviors that addiction can cause, right? And I think that what happens in sobriety sometimes is there's a lot of people that, you know, getting sober obviously is a great thing, a great first step. And to some people, that becomes the only thing that they try to achieve is like, I'm going to do whatever I can to stay sober and that's it. And I think in order to be happy, in my opinion, long term, I'm not talking like the first few weeks, first few months, first few years, I'm talking like long term, you have to be spending time with people that want more for themselves. Yeah, dude, I love what you just said. I'm going to steal that. Hanging out with people who have common futures, not just common past. That was, I've never heard that. If, if I leave this podcast now, I'll walk away a better man. Thank you for saying that. That was genius. And I'm sure you heard it from somebody and heard it from somebody. And that was so good because it's so true. I got caught up in, you know, let me give you an example. I still go. In fact, I hold what's called, I hold a, a men's recovery meeting here in my studio here locally in Salt Lake City. And it's not a technical AA meeting. It's kind of, I just want to create an environment where we could just kind of come together and chat, right? And people are all different ends of the spectrum. And it's funny, for the probably the first five years, I've been sober now 10, especially in the recovery meeting community, I identified like, oh, you just drank? Hmm. Guess we're not the same because, see, I was an IV heroin addict. Like that's, I was comparing our past. Like that mattered. Missing the point that like, it doesn't really matter. We all felt the same way, broken, lost, helpless, you know, hopeless. And it doesn't matter if you were still living in a nice penthouse suite in New York City and drinking yourself to death or if you were on the street like me. It was the feelings that binded us together and the common goal of where we want to get to. And so I would commiserate with people and almost judge like this very sick dynamic of almost looking down like, oh, you just drank. <laughs> you don't know what I've been through. And that's how I would relate with these people. And today I could give any of those men that come to my recovery meeting, I could give a shit less what you did, how much you did. All I know is that we all felt the same way at one point. And like you said, we're all striving for this different goal in life to be a better man, 1% better each day. And that's all that matters to me. Right. And I think just to take it a layer deeper from what you just said as well, like that, you know, a lot of these things, the heroin, alcohol, coke, they're just tools, right? They're just tools for people to cope and to solve and to solve their internal wounds and problems. Right. And I think with recovery, what happens with a lot of people, and I'm sure you've seen this, is that they get into recovery and they still have those wounds. They still have these unhealthy patterns that happen and they, they get caught up in the stress cycle and anxiety cycles and they just don't know how to deal with it anymore. Maybe they're not using a substance, but maybe they're lashing out at their partner. Maybe they are self-sabotaging themselves or they're not leaving their home because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to manage things. And what I often will say is you have to find new tools and new coping strategies to deal with the things that cause you to use in the first place. And that's why I think fitness, it can be the greatest thing. And it doesn't have to be in a way where you're at the gym for two, three hours a day. It, it could be walking, could be yoga, could be whatever works for that person. But I mean, I'm really glad that you've touched on that, that point that like once you identified that we all are the same, it just takes the masks off of all of us and it allows us to connect on a deeper level. Yeah, man, it's so true. And, you know, we, this goes for shopping, gambling, gaming, you name it. But 
for drugs and alcohol, for people like me, me and you who have struggled with that, we're craving this dopamine hit. Like I used drugs and alcohol because I wanted to feel better. And essentially I wanted to feel different because I was running from anxiety. I was running from depression. I was running from all these issues, but essentially I liked the effect produced. I liked to feel good. And when I would do those, I would feel good until the very end, like the bad kept outweighing the good. And that's kind of was my turning point, but I wanted to feel good. And so most addicts do. That's why we started. And maybe it didn't end that way, but that's why we started. Exercise, walking, lifting weights, like hopping on the cardio machine. All of that gives this dopamine hit. We all feel better after, so I feel good. And so I really ran towards that. And I've been at all opposite ends of the spectrum of like, I competed in some bodybuilding shows early on in my sobriety. And I went too far on the other side where it wasn't no longer about feeling good. It was about this obsession with having to have my body look a certain way. And for me, I've talked to plenty of people on my Instagram who are competitors, who are also in recovery. It just didn't work for me because they always say, hey, I know you hate you hate it or you don't think people in recovery should compete. I said, no, I don't think Brad should compete. That was the issue because I went too far and no longer was it about like, man, I care about my health. It was like this, this obsession with having to have this ab look just this way or, you know, those, I was so in like the things I was saying to myself getting ready for the show were, were horrible. Like calling myself fat and skinny in the same sentence. So it got kind of distorted and that's why I decided, Hey, I'm not going to compete anymore. I'm going to kind of hang that up because when I'm focused on my health, I mean, using drugs and alcohol, you're usually not a healthy person. It's just this kind of complete opposite end of the spectrum that like today I have a kid now. I want to live a long time. My health matters even more. I don't know too many people who have long-term recovery that are happy that haven't put health as some kind of priority. Happy is the caveat here, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, most everybody that I've come across that is happy and thriving in recovery has some health component in their lives, whatever it is, like whether it's hiking, whether it's lifting, whether it's yoga, whatever it is, they do something to prioritize their wellness. And you mentioned that you initially started to do drugs to feel good, to run from things like depression and anxiety and to fit in and, and that sort of thing. And I know I touched on at the beginning, like where like your big, like I would say like your rock bottom moment was where it was like you were feeling so low about yourself. But we know it didn't start there. So walk the audience through, like, what was your first experience like with using drugs? What was going on in your life at the time? How old were you? And how did that make you feel? I was 13 years old and I was a chubby kid. I was overweight. And, you know, looking back, I just want to give that little 12-year-old kid a hug because I just hadn't hit that growth spurt like my friends. I also really liked food. I mean, my addiction kind of started early. Like, I would just eat way too much, not move enough. And these are bad recipes for anybody. But I felt like the fattest kid alive because the kids I hung out with were, they had rib cages. So we called those abs. Like they were just really ectomorph skinny. And then there's me. And so I was really uncomfortable in my own skin. My friends would tease me. And so I was 13 when I tried my first drink. And I remember, you know, I come from, you know, my family at the time was a very religious Christian family. And like, you know, you don't drink. And, and I remember when they were passing the Jack Daniels around, I was like, nope, that's bad. We can't do that guys. You stole this from your mom. Don't do it. And of course it like, we're in a circle. And so the peer pressure kicks in and I remember I just drank it. And my first thought was why would adults drink this? This is awful. And about 20 minutes later, I was like, I get it. This is amazing. 
You see, I didn't care to be the fat kid anymore. I didn't care that my friends were making fun of me. I was making fun of myself with them, making them laugh. And so that's where it started. And that kind of would go, I mean, we're 13. So it's not like we had an abundance of access to it. That kind of continued for off and on for a couple of years until I found fitness. And I was sick of being the chubby kid, picked up a magazine in a bookstore, was fascinated by it. It was the first time I'd just been like enthralled. And I just started following what these magazines said. Next thing you know, and I'm probably doing like a bikini girl diet in there. I, I remember my breakfast was four egg whites and a half a grapefruit. That's all I remember. Like, <laughs> I've obviously I lost a lot of weight. I was probably on a huge calorie deficit. I also got active. I was running and I got into the gym when I was 16. Cause my mom said, I'm not taking you to the gym. So when you get a car, you're welcome to drive yourself. And I said, okay, cool. So I got into the gym and I just fell in love, man. I fell in love with those weights. I would stay there for hours, not lifting, just picking these older guys' brains. I mean, older to me, they were probably in their mid-20s, but when you're 16, they seem old. And God bless their souls. They were so patient with me. I'd be like, what's this? They're like, that's a drop set. I'm like, why do you do that? What do you do this for? I was so, so enthralled. Got the encyclopedia of bodybuilding, read that thing front to back in school. I was passionate. And along the way too, I realized how bad drinking was for you. And I actually, that was even before I got really into the weights. And so I just stopped drinking. I was like, I'm not going to do it because I'd fell in love with fitness. I was just so passionate about it. And so I didn't drink at all. I stopped doing it, but I still felt this kind of insecurity and anxiety all the time. Even though like I started looking really good, I started getting attention. The hot girl in school knew who I was now, like the whole charade, right? I was pretty jacked for being, you know, a 16, 17 year old kid. And we went to a party and my buddy said, do you want to get messed up on these pain pills? And I was so naive. And I said, oh, I'm not in any pain. And he said, no, no, no. It'll make you feel like you're drunk, but you don't have a hangover the next day. And all he had to say was one line. He said, all the bodybuilders are doing it. Done. I was like, oh, if they're all doing it. So I took a couple. I remember when they hit me, I remember where I was at in the split level house. It was those moments in time where time just freezes and you can always remember it. It was split level house. It was brown cabinets. It was a jungle juice party. So there was like all these red solo cups everywhere. I remember like who I was with. I remember everything about that house. Cause I remember when they hit me, I thought, and this is the feeling I want the rest of my life. Like I was in love with that feeling. And it's interesting how some people take painkillers and they say, oh, I hate them. They made me sick. Or there's people like me who just, nope, didn't feel sick at all. In fact, I loved it. That's where it began, man. I was 17 years old and I started just chasing it. I mean, real early, it was an unhealthy relationship with it to the point where I'm figuring out where my buddy got them. He got them from his mom. I'm going over, waiting until he goes to the bathroom. And then I'm snagging the pill bottle and taking some. Like that quick, the behavior was very abnormal with it. Wow. And because I think a lot of people would listen to this and be like, and you talked about like your relationship with fitness early on and how you you sought out mentors in the gym and you were asking questions, you became obsessed with like your health that people would be like, oh, like this is a really cool thing. Like he's hopefully going to use something like health and fitness to help him, you know, move past this alcohol thing. And then maybe like that takes him in a more positive direction in your life. And I guess like looking back, like in those moments, like when you're 17 and you're now taking these pain pills and you mentioned that you wanted to feel like this the rest of your life, was it specifically like what they did for you? And you just felt like cool doing it because the bodybuilders were doing it or looking back, were you just like numbing, like some pain and trauma, or you mentioned you were getting picked on? Like, what do you think it was about the feeling of the painkillers that was so appealing? We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Organifi. 
As you know, Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers that contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving. Recently, I have been loving the refreshing taste of the new Organifi green juice, Crisp Apple. That's right, Crisp Apple. It comes with all the benefits you've come to love in the classic green juice with a new juicy twist. Enjoy the same fan-favorite nourishing ingredients such as ashwagandha, moringa, spirulina, and chlorella, designed to hydrate, energize, and support cortisol balance. The new green juice crisp apple is made with organic, wholesome, hand-picked apples. and tastes like a fresh, juicy slice in every sip, making it the first of its kind the whole family will absolutely love. It's only available for a limited time, so make sure to stock up now and take advantage of this nourishing green juice that tastes absolutely divine. So go to www.organifi.com backslash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. You know, I think it was kind of probably multi-layer. It's interesting. You know, I originally started using because I had the worst anxiety. I mean, to the point where... I got beat up a little by some guys in sixth grade and I came home and told my mom, I'm never going to that school again. And I made her ship me off to live in the Bay area with my aunt, which I was supposed to finish school out there, but I had such bad anxiety going to a new school that I just stopped going. Like, I don't know how I just didn't complete sixth grade, but it worked somehow. From that moment at 12, I started running and then I found some alcohol at 13 and even the gym, I was running a little, but it, it was definitely a positive in my life. But I still felt this anxiety. Like I still felt like that chubby kid who had to wear the black t-shirt on a hundred degree heat day to the pool because I was so insecure about my little, you know, my little belly and man boobs. I still would deal with this anxiety. And so when I took those, it's like I felt whole. The gym helped me get away from that more. I didn't just have this petrifying anxiety to live life, but I definitely still was like, oh, I thought just getting the muscles would help. I was still trying to run from being me. And so I think it was twofold. In that moment, I had zero anxiety. I didn't care. And I was here for it. And then secondly, I did kind of want to be cool. I thought, you know, I want to get messed up. I'm in high school. I don't really want to be sober. Like all these guys are getting drunk at a party. I would like to feel inebriated too and under the influence I just don't want to drink because it will ruin my leg day tomorrow. Like that's where my head was at or my back and biceps day or whatever it was. And so I think it was twofold, but definitely I was running from still running for myself. There was progress, but I still felt this. Um, I still didn't feel just right in my body. Like I just didn't feel like I just fit. I couldn't explain it, you know? Yeah, I think like when we're we're struggling with our self-esteem, our self-worth, we're we're always going to look for a way to numb the pain and to use something outside of ourselves to fill that void, right? Whether that's something like fitness which can be used in a in a negative way, obviously at times drugs, alcohol, sex, money, you name it, and I just think when you go through some of the things that you went through, I think you become an easy target for things like that. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, and, you know, the gym initially was such a good relief for me until I started getting attention. And then I would get nicknames like, oh, big Brad, like big as in the buff Brad, not the fat Brad. And I felt this like deep need to just 
continue to be that guy at all costs. And so it was, it was interesting looking back. It's like the gym saved my life, but at the same token, like there was more work to be done, but just as a 17 year old kid, I didn't know how to go to my parents and be like, Hey, I know I'm popular now. I know I got the hot girl in school. I know I'm like in really good shape, but I'm still just riddled with anxiety and don't know how to look in the mirror and like what I see. Like, what do I do from here? So I turned to a solution that was real easy, you know? Right. So you're really into fitness you're getting a lot of attention from people about the way you look and you're experimenting with painkillers to numb the pain. How did you go from that to where it seems like, I mean, you're just kind of doing what a lot of kids in high school do, right? Recreationally using drugs to have fun and feel a certain way. You're getting fit, getting attention from girls. Like how did it go from that to then like, you know, IV heroin use and you're, you know, in the back of your mom's car shooting up dope so that you can feel okay enough to go to your grandfather's funeral. Yeah, man, that kind of all continued. And I was trying to get my hands on them as much as I could until I was introduced to this by, by these older guys that I thought were just gods in my life. Right. And again, who you surround yourself with matters. They were probably three or four years older than me, but when you're 17 and they're 21, they, I mean, I looked up to these guys, they were jacked, they were big. And they put me onto this thing to drive down from Salt Lake City to Tijuana, Mexico, which just for the listeners listening, it's, it's not from San Diego. It's a 14 hour drive. It's not, it's not from Baltimore to Tijuana, but it's not like a, just a quick little, like hop down and you go down, you go to the pharmacias and we'd pack it full of narcotics and steroids. And we'd take off the door panels in my car. We'd stack them in there and we'd put the door panels back on, drill it and then drive through the border with the sombrero on and they were like, Hey, and they'd let us through. And the first time I did it, it was idiot Savannah. I had no idea the amount of federal felonies, like drug trafficking through country lines I was committing and it worked. And so I said like, screw these older guys. I'll just go by myself. Cause I went for them and they gave me a little piece. And I was like, that doesn't seem like the greatest deal. So I started going down. I went down three more times, but what happened in there was twofold. That's where my entrepreneurship began because I began selling drugs. And again, like I didn't see the ugly side of addiction. I was just selling them to other high school kids who wanted to party on the weekends. And so I wasn't selling them to junkies seeing this ugly side, but twofold, what happened was I ended up having enough that I was using a little bit every day and still graduated high school. But for six months, I did that. And for anybody who knows anything about how especially opiates or benzos or anything's work, you develop a physical dependence upon it, whether you're mentally or emotionally addicted, they have a huge physical addiction component. And before I know it, I was like, oh, I'm, I think I'm hooked, but I remember not thinking it'd be an issue, but I was like, oh, like you've been using them every day. And so I decided I got to clean up my life. Didn't want to go down there anymore. Realized how dangerous what I was doing said, okay, it's time to turn my life around. I got a job right out of high school at Bally Total Fitness as a personal trainer, get certified when I was in high school. They were like, you're probably the youngest trainer we've ever hired, but come on. So I was like, okay, it's time to clean up my life. Like I want to attack this fitness thing. I want to be a trainer. I want to be the world's best trainer is what I told myself. And so I remember the day came where I just said, I'm done, I'm stopping. And unfortunately my body didn't like that very much. And I went into withdrawals. I'd heard about withdrawals, but I'd never experienced anything like that. It was the flu times 10. Like it was just along with just physical symptoms, just this, I mean, almost panic attack, like anxiety, vomiting, shivering, shaking. And so I made one call and that call ended up being somebody that said, Hey, I don't have pain pills, but I've got something else. And I remember thinking in my head, this is a line in the sand I've drawn. Like, no, heroin is gross. That is for people who live under bridges. Like I'm not going to do that. And I remember I hesitated a moment 
Next thing you know, I said, will it make me feel better? He said, yeah, instantly. And so I sat there um, as an 18, almost 19-year-old kid and shot up heroin for the first time. And it instantly did make me feel better. And, and the problem with it is the price discrepancy. It was, it was about, you know, 70% cheaper to get the same high. And so I was off to the races. Whether I wanted to or not, I remember thinking, you can't go down this path. This is not going to end up good. I've never met, like, somebody who's like, oh, yeah, this guy's a successful entrepreneur, CEO, and he's a heroin addict. Like, I just, I remember thinking in my head, like, this is not going to end up well. This story does not go well. And I just was so physically and emotionally and all, I was so addicted by that point that I just ran with it and ended up in a treatment center. A whopping six months later was all, my parents put me in it. I finally came clean to them. They knew I was partying, but they had no clue I was doing that. Went to treatment and that was in 2005 was my first treatment center. And I got sober in November of 2012, November 20th, 2012. So over the next seven years, I spent a lot of time in, uh, keep getting locked up. You know, the problem is once you get in the system, if you don't want to stay clean, you'll keep violating probation. So they keep putting you back in. And then I'd catch a new charge. I went to three or four more treatment centers. The problem was I wanted the consequences to stop, but if I really wanted to be done, I would have been done, but I just kept going. And it was just this incomprehensible demoralization. It was truly insanity. You just kept doing the same thing and then would end up in the same spots and go like, how did this happen to me? And so Flash forward, you know, towards the end of my using, because it was just, that seven years was just full of just disgrace. It was, I was unemployable. I'd get a job for a second and then I would lose it. And I had moments in there of 30 days or 60 days sober or 90 days. And then I would blow it all again because I would think, okay, I'm good to go back just a little bit. And for me, like one's too many and a thousand's never enough type analogy. And so it ran to um, to end up me being homeless the whole year of 2012. And, you know, because I always managed to just keep my life enough afloat to have an apartment or have these things. And by the end, I lost everything. And so I ended up homeless that last year of, of 2012. And that's where things got really, really dark for me. So I want to go back to the parts in your story. You just talked about how like the the seven years was just a path of debauchery where you would go to treatment and then you would come back out and then it'd be the same thing over and over again. Like when you would relapse again or when you would choose to use, was it more of you, that was just like what you wanted to do because that was just a lifestyle you were used to or would something come up like in your life where you would get stressed, you get anxious, you get overwhelmed with something and you just couldn't manage it without drugs? I think a little bit of both, but probably more the latter. I just didn't have the right coping mechanisms. And you see, I talked about things I would do a little different now knowing, right? But even that was an improvement from what I was doing then, which I was still hanging out. I would still hang out with people that did drugs, but I was going to be like the sober one and help them out. Like, let me help you out here. Like, oh yeah. And I would gloat about how, oh yeah, I'm, I'm dry. I'm not doing any of that now. Like, I don't care whether somebody goes to recovery meetings or not, but I think surrounding yourself with really positive influences who are striving for more in life than to be a drug addict is incredibly crucial. And so when these life situations would hit, you know, it could be as simple as a girlfriend breaking up with me, which I shouldn't say simple, but you know, I remember one girl I'd been dating a whopping four months and she broke up with me and not like four years. And that sent me off the deep end. I had just gotten a job that I finally wanted managing a personal training department at Gold's gym here locally. And they fired me because I made some really grave mistakes sober. I wasn't even loaded at the time. 
And that sent me off the deep end. Like I had no coping mechanisms. And there was sometimes, sometimes I would deliberately go out because I thought, you know what? I think I overreacted. I need to stay away from heroin, but I'm going to go back. I'm just going to smoke a little pot and do a little bit of party drugs like GHB or, you know, ecstasy. Inevitably, whether it was quick or slow, it would lead me right back to the stuff I loved, which would lead me back, you know, being homeless, helpless, and hopeless. Right. And so throughout this process of your journey with using heroin and shooting up heroin, what was your relationship like with fitness at that time? Because I know that early on, you were able to obviously work out and be healthy from a physical component while still using drugs. Like, Did you always continue to work out throughout that journey or was there ever a time where you just gave it up? There was a good portion where, and truly I mean this, fitness is probably the only thread that kept me from dying because I cared just enough. I mean, I would still go to the gym and you see, like, even if I would, there would be spurts where I wouldn't, cause I would usually go on these benders. So I'd go four, six months pretty hard. And the first, let's say I went six months of using again, the first four, I would still go to the gym just enough that I actually didn't look like a junkie. So um, people didn't really know just on the streets because I still had some muscle. I wasn't as big. It would tone down my using because I was like, but I still want to work out. I still want to do this. And so while even being daily addicted to heroin, there were times where I was still going to the gym. And then by the very end, the wheels would fall off and then I would end up in jail, detox, rehab again, and then do the cycle over again. But it was the only thread that kept some normalcy in my life. The very last year, is where I remember almost just throwing in the towel. And I was like, when you end up homeless, you don't really have like access to a gym. You know, my parents had cut me off at that point. I lost the place I was living because I didn't pay rent. And so I'm on the streets. I never had to sleep on the streets. I was very resourceful and slept at uh, some shady places. But that year was the year that I just, I lost all sense of who I was. Zero gym. I lost about 38 pounds, not about, I remember distinctly it was 38 pounds when they weighed me in in jail. And I was thinking, man, like I looked like a shell of a human being. I looked like a junkie that last year. I was the guy you'd walk into a gas station if you had your kid by you and I was standing behind you, you'd pull him just a little bit tighter. I just didn't look right. You could tell that I was not doing well. I'd lost you. People would look at me and go, did you used to work out? Cause they could see almost the muscle hanging off me. Like they could see that once I had a frame that supported that. And I remember I would even say things like, yeah, but screw the gym. It's all just a bunch of ego assholes that go there. I was, I was mad at the gym. I was mad because I wasn't going. I was mad because this thing that had been such a part of my life, you know, since I was 15, 16 years old was just gone because I gave it all away to use drugs. I gave away any relationship with my family. And so that last year was finally when it's almost like God or whoever else is out there was like, we're taking this away from you too. Like, there you go. You're left with just you and this pathetic life that you're living day after day after day. And so that was the year. And I, and I think that was one of my saving graces to finally get sober was when they weighed me in at jail, I remember thinking, you've lost almost 40 pounds and probably 30 of that was muscle. I was really skinny for me, jet black hair, really sunken in face. And it was this turning point that I was like, wow, because I hadn't weighed myself all year. When you're homeless, you're not out there weighing yourself. And I remember even going to a gym one time to shower, Doug. I snuck in to go shower because I felt gross because I hadn't showered in a couple days, three days. And I remember walking by everyone. It was just this deep pit in my stomach of like, that used to be you in there. Like It used to be you. 
And so it's a great question. Actually, I've never been asked that directly that that last year fitness was goodbye. So I want to dive more into that last year. So you mentioned that you were in jail and they weighed you, you lost a bunch of weight. And that was like a big wake up call for you. Other big wake up call, I would say from what I heard you say is like when you were in that car with your mom before your grandfather's funeral, which I've referenced a few times and I want to get there in a second, but walk the audience through, what was that year like for you? Like you said you were homeless and you didn't really have a place to live. You were in jail. Like what were you in jail for? And then what was the day to day like for you? Like being somebody who wasn't homeless, like how did you survive? How did you make money? Like what did you do? And then ultimately walk the audience through the day that I've been referencing with your grandfather's funeral. Yeah, for sure. So that last year I actually did the longest thing I did in jail was 2011 and I did eight months. They gave me a year and they finally just said, we're giving you all the time. You're done off probation. You suck on probation. You're, we're done with you. So I, I did my time. I only did eight months cause they give you good time. I got out in January of 2012, so I did a good majority of 2011. So at that point, I was off paper. I had nothing hanging over my head for the first time since I caught charges in 2005. I had nothing hanging over my head because I finally just did all the time they could give me on it between all my relapses and going back. So the last year, you know, my pattern, like I said, was I would go four to six months super hard, then something would intervene. The cops, my parents, detox, rehab, something. I went and I didn't draw a sober breath from January that year till my sobriety date on November 20th. So I went almost a full calendar year of just day after day thinking like it was the longest stretch I had ever gone when it was that bad. There were stretches maybe early on before I was that addicted, but I was committing crimes every day. I was middleman selling drugs because I couldn't actually sell them well because I would do them all. So I would middleman for people. We were hustling. We could do whatever I had to do to stay high. And there, there were some, some bad things I did. And a funny thing happened was I got introduced. Uh, some of There's a lot of good people out there that use drugs that went down a bad path. I like to think I was one of them. And I would bond with some of the people that were just kind of looking at each other's unspoken thing about what are we doing here, right? What are we doing? But there was some genuinely bad people and my past crossed with them that last year, and I saw some of the most heinous, deplorable things I've ever seen. I mean, I was watched a girl get kidnapped and tortured over a $30 drug debt. Like, I remember thinking for the first time, if the drugs don't kill me, the people you're hanging out with will. And it got really scary and really dark. And I was using uppers at the time, too, to stay awake so I could go hustle to get what I needed to get to get heroin. And along with meth comes some really, really shady people. And I believe that's what finally clicked for me because I started to get terrified for my life. I mean, I'm hanging out with people that are wanted for murder. I didn't know that at the time. And I'm, I'm staying in the same room with them. And there was just this eerie, dark feeling of impending doom. Like something bad was going to happen, Doug. Like I couldn't, I watched bad things and I'm like, you're next. Like somehow you've avoided this. And if you don't get it together, like this is going to kill you. And the fact that I didn't catch another charge was beyond me. So the night of November 19th, I hop in a car. The guy asked me to drive. I hop in the passenger seat. He said, no, I need you to drive. So I hop in the driver's seat. We're going to get drugs. I barely knew this guy. I'm getting on the freeway and it's kind of an on-ramp and there's two sides coming and I'm texting the drug dealer. So I'm not looking. So the car swerves. I swerve. I'm also under the influence and I almost hit this car and I course correct all the way back. And I was like, oh crap. 
I'm going to hit that car. And the car had to go off into the median and come back. And then I look and it's a cop. So the lights flip on. And about three days before this, I started praying like something different needs to happen. And I get arrested. But before that, there was this moment. And that's where my journey began. But before that, my mom picked me up. And this is why I told that part of the story first. My mom picked me up to go to my grandfather's funeral on November 19th. And she said to me, Please do what you got to do to be right. And I know what that meant. It meant don't be too high that you're drooling on yourself and don't be withdrawing sick. You see, my mom knew I used heroin. She'd cut me off at this point, but she never watched me do it. So of course the day comes, I can't stay. I don't have enough drugs. I use them all. They're gone. And I'm withdrawing and I thought, you know what? Maybe I can just go plug forward for a few hours. I want to show up for my grandpa's funeral. If I can just like make it, I might be a little sick, but the withdrawals hit hard. By the time she picked me up, I'm vomiting in her car. I'm shaking. I'm shivering. I'm a mess. I'm sweating. She said, I can't take you like this. What do we need to do? And I looked at her and I said, we need to go to the drug dealer's house. So I make my good little religious mom take me to the drug dealer's house. Then when I get there, I had insulted the injury by asking her for 20 bucks. So I go get the drugs. I come back out. By this point, we had gone so far out of the way, we were going to be late to the funeral. She said, hop in the back seat, do whatever you got to do. Let's go. She was so mad. So we hop on the highway heading north and I'm in the back seat of her car. And I always feel like I don't want like this. It's a graphic scene. When you have an IV drug user, there's a spoon and needle and a kid. And by this point, my veins all hated me. So a very grotesque scene back there. There's blood going everywhere. Cause I can't find a vein. And I make the mistake of looking up and looking in the rear. My mom's eyes are in the rear view mirror. And they are just staring at me, staring. I don't even know if she's looking at the road. And it's just tears streaming down her face. She's not even wiping them off. Her mascara is running everywhere. She wasn't sobbing. It was genuinely tears of heartbreak. Like if heartbreak had a picture, it would be my mom right there. She's just crying. And I finally find the vein. I do the drugs and immediately didn't feel sick. But it, it couldn't feel the ginormous pit in my stomach. I remember I sat up and I said, I'm sorry, mom. And she didn't say a word. And we continued to drive in silence as her tears are just wiping down onto her dress. And I remember thinking in that moment, Doug, I, I thought very clearly, you have two choices. There's no other choice. You either need to kill yourself or you need to get sober. Going on another day like this was not going to be an option. And the first option sounded a little more appealing because it was the easier, softer way. And I remember thinking you are the most selfish prick ever to do that to your mother. The drugs didn't even get me high that day. They barely took away my sickness, but I was sick to my stomach at what I had become. And that moment happened for a reason because I remember saying a prayer and I was like, if anyone's up there, I don't know. Something's got to be up there. Please make this end tonight. Please. I don't want to kill myself. Please. Flash forward about three, four hours later, I hopped in that car and the cop did it for me. Those lights went on. That prayer to just make this end tonight. My first reaction was panic because I knew the withdrawals I was about to suffer in jail were going to be brutal. But my second was just relief because seeing the guy in the passenger seat had said, Hey man, this car's stolen. And so I said, Oh great. So this guy's going to pull me over. I've got drugs on me. I'm going to get drugs. I don't have a license and the car's stolen. I'm going to jail. And sure enough, the cop came up and I said, listen, you should probably take me to jail because I'm high. I'm going to get more. I need to stop. This car's stolen. 
And uh, I've never seen a cop was really confused. Said, well, this is the easiest arrest of all time. You're absolutely right. Let's go. Put me in the backseat. And that's where my journey began. And so I'm sorry that went a little long winded there, but that moment right there, I will never forget when I even tell the story, I get chills. I remember so clearly everything that happened in that moment for a reason. And I'm so grateful for it now today. And my mom and me have a fantastic relationship. She was just over at my house hanging out and I take her on a yearly trip and we go watch her San Francisco Giants playing a baseball game. And like, that's the shit I get to do today is every year I take her on a trip and we spend some great quality time together because I decided to change my life. And because I broke her heart so much that like for the rest of my life, I will spend like making sure that I'm there for her, you know? Yeah, man. What a story. Thank you for sharing all that. And, you know, sometimes there's obviously the God's looking out for us in ways we don't even understand sometimes, right? And he just intervenes in the moments where we least expect it. And I know at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about some of the things that you would have done differently at the beginning of your recovery journey. Let's get into like what actually happened. So you end up getting arrested what were you charged with? How much time did you spend in jail? And then where did that lead you? And, and what were some of the things that you did that finally you know, got you to stay sober? You know what I did? A whopping 30 days in jail, which was not much. It was just enough. The charges were dropped. This guy stole it from his mom. Apparently, she dropped the charges. And I remember thinking, all right, there must be a God because he was like, hey, you've done enough time in jail. Clearly, that's not what's going to change you. We need you to have enough time that you dry up and clean up, get all the drugs out of your system and be ready to attack life. And so I got out of jail and, and I just went left instead of right, so to speak. You know, I called my mom for a ride. She said, you can't stay here, but I'll drop you off at a recovery meeting. And so she did. And that recovery meeting, I met somebody that would let me stay on their couch. He let me stay on the couch. I started waiting tables. That was the easiest job to get. <laughs> I was a felon at this point, a felony convicted record. So I went and got a job waiting tables. And while waiting tables, I bumped into a guy that I used to work for that had started a nutrition coaching company, kind of, uh, it was local here. It was kind of a glorified like meal plans and supplements we would sell to, but I didn't give a shit. It was in the industry and that's what I wanted to do. So he hired me, took a chance on me. I was very honest with him about why I was waiting tables and not in the fitness industry anymore. And man, I remember just feeling so grateful I think back and there's some moments now today, like I have the shit I would have dreamed of having. Like I couldn't even fathom of having the life I have today, 10 years later when I first got sober. And yet I find myself being more ungrateful for it today sometimes than when I was six months sober driving this piece of shit car that was a two door, that was really a one door. The passenger side was welded shut almost. It wouldn't open. So you can imagine like hopping, a, you know, asking a girl out on a date. I'm just like, yeah, hop through the passenger side. Like, but I didn't care. I was so excited just to be living life again. I remember feeling the gratitude when a client cried to me on a call and said, like, you've changed my life. I'm so grateful for you. And I remember I started crying and I left and I was so happy. And it hit me in that moment. I was 28 years old. And I, I thought to myself, if this is what gratitude feels like, this is the first time you felt grateful in your whole life then. Like, it was astonishing. And I thought, man, this is what I've been searching for in a bottle and a pill and a pipe and a needle was this feeling of gratitude. And that's why I've said that like, gratitude is the antidote to life. And, and I've really ran with just trying to not only practice gratitude, but embody it and truly be grateful. And again, even today, sometimes I have to check myself and be like, dude, 
you have so much to be grateful for. There's 99% of my life that's great and the 1% that really sucks and I'm fixated sometimes on the 1%. And so, man, I just attacked it. I got really back into fitness. I got back into coaching people. I grew my business really fast there. Again, recovery meetings was part of my story and we kind of talked about that, that I almost got too entrenched in there. And about five, six years into my sobriety, I started joining business masterminds with you know, people that were doing bigger things than me that seemed to have kind of their shit together. And I was like, what are they doing? And it's so funny. I remember I had this morning routine because they told me to do a morning routine in 12 step rooms. And I thought the morning, I thought the morning routine was only for sober people. And then I get into these business circles and I'm like, no shit. It's like a successful human being thing. And not that you have to have a morning routine to be successful, but I started seeing these themes that I was like, man, like this all makes sense. And so I've still stayed active in those meetings, not nearly as active as I used to. But again, I try to be of service and hold one in my office for people to come. I've continued to surround myself with people in that circle. Doug, like the last 18 months has gone from here. I mean, you guys can't see, but it's, it's shrunk, shrunk immensely because my values kept up lifting, right? I kept up leveling where I expect my life to be and what I'm aiming for. And in that process of up-leveling your own life, I sadly kind of had to move on from some friends and some of it happened organically. And there's one particular conversation that I had to have a conversation with the guy and that sucks, but you are some of the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I realized the things I wanted to talk about, the things that deeply matter in life, they weren't talking about. And so they're still my friends if I want to watch a football game, but I've really, really tightened up my circle even more because again, what I value has continued to change. And so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that summed it all up for you, but that's the gist of it. Well, congrats, man, on your sobriety and congrats everything that you've accomplished personally, professionally, and spiritually. And I know obviously you mentioned gratitude, the people you spend time with, like you know, rededicating yourself to your mission and purpose in life, fitness, these are have all been like components that have helped you, you know, thrive along the way. And I know you talk about like the four pillars of health, the four pillars of fitness, and and obviously. Like if fitness was the end-all be-all for you, you would have been sober this whole time, right? Because you were working out a good bit of your days when you were using, right? So obviously this time around, these last 10 years, there was other things besides fitness that you had to address so that you could really get well emotionally and mentally. So what were a few of those things? Yeah, I always kind of referred to, you know, within my company, Key Nutrition, and the coach we have, where we kind of try to model this four-legged chair, right, of fitness, these four pillars, and, like, people come to us for the physical health, but we need to make sure the emotional, mental, and spiritual health are somewhat in check, too, and so, because if not, you're just left balancing on this chair that you're like, shit, this feels really, you know, it's got to be a more well-rounded approach, and something like walking, you initially said, Walking for me, it's the tri well, four it hits all four legs. It helps my physical health, but it also helps my mental, emotional health. And especially when I'm walking outside, it helps my spiritual health because I just feel connected. Like there's something greater out here, like in the earth and the, the nature and the environment. And just to give you context, four or five years ago, I would have been like, that's the most hippie shit ever. You would have never caught me out there, like standing my bare feet in the earth, like on my grass, trying to ground even four years ago. But again, the evolution, right? And so- what I've done to attack those looks different on different seasons of my life. I try to take a much more well-rounded approach to health now, meaning I get regular blood work done. I want to see what that looks like. I used to take a lot of steroids because all I cared about was the aesthetics. 
And today I like want to make sure I'm actually healthy. Like I don't want to be like driving myself into the ground that way. Like I said, I'm a single dad of a two and a half year old boy and it's my life. Like the leverage points change. I'm a big proponent of therapy. I've had kind of been off and on in therapy for different issues when it comes to relationships or, you know, a marriage that didn't work out. Like, why didn't it work out? I can blame her, but I got to look at my shit. So again, I don't think someone asks a therapist all the time, but there were some issues that I'm like, there's something deeper here. I'm a big proponent of that, of life coaching. I have a life coach, an energy work girl, a therapist, all currently that I tell people it takes a village apparently to keep me sane some days. And so- I just think examining those things, I'm a big proponent of gratitude journaling. Like I said, meditation has been instrumental this last year. I didn't implement it till this last year because I told myself stories like you can't meditate, you have ADD. And I just started doing it without the expectation of doing it right. And wouldn't you know, like the shit started working. People would DM me all the time and say, well, how do I know if I'm doing it right? I'm like, there's no right or wrong way. It's this David and Goliath battle of like, David is my body, right? Goliath is the mind just trying to take over. And it's just like letting thoughts come and go. What that has done for my life is people tell me things like, hey, dude, you just seem a lot more calm lately. You seem more patient. But again, I don't think I would have been ready for meditation before I finally did it, which was nine years into my sobriety journey. But again, I'm like, what can I do to get more out of life? And my idea of success has continued to change. I used to view success strictly monetary. Okay, this guy's got a nice car. He's got a Lambo. He's successful. Now I'm like, how do you show up at home? How's your balance with your family? Like, again, I had a marriage that didn't work out. And like, I had to look at that and take ownership of like, why? Why didn't it work out? And I have to own my shit so I can show up better in a future relationship. And so my perception of success has changed as I've continued to dump into all areas. And I tell people, you don't have to be an A plus in every leg of the chair. But for me, when I'm, when I'm a solid B player in all of them and they'll oscillate back and forth, damn, that chair feels very balanced to sit on. I think balance is an illusion in life, but if I can feel more sturdy and feel less off kilter, my decision's making better. My parenting's better. My business goes better. My health tends to go better. You name it, right? Yeah. I love that you brought that up, man. And, and, and thanks for sharing all that you're doing because you're right. Like I think health isn't just physical health. Like health is also your, men- your emotional health, your mental health, and your spiritual health. And you have to find like different strategies within those pillars that work for you. Like you mentioned therapy, you mentioned energy work, you mentioned meditation, obviously blood work fitness, relationships, like how you're showing up as a dad, it's all so important. And like also the one thing you said I wanted to kind of dive into is you talked about how you changed like what your view of success was like. And I know that external validation in this world can be a slippery slope. And I know that you struggled with that as a kid. So now being that, you know, some of these business masterminds, I mean, I've been in masterminds and I know like money can be a big focus of that. And that can be addicting, right? To want to make more money and pursue more and more and more. And then also with social media and everything that you're doing with your podcast. And I know you're, you're open about being on like TRT, like all that stuff can be like addicting, right? If you're not careful. So have you found yourself like ever like falling into any kind of addictive patterns with any of this stuff? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, again, I was so coming from being homeless and having nothing to then, you know, starting to build up, started a business about four years into my sobriety. And I remember I, I was obsessed with winning and winning to me meant making a lot of money. And I remember I got the biggest check. I mean, I looked at my bank account for that month. It was the biggest amount we had made, biggest amount I personally taken home off it, but I had drove my marriage into the ground in the process. 
I actually, for the first time, kind of, I mean, my health was still mediocre, but I wasn't sleeping. Like I was still going to the gym, but I, I wasn't eating enough. So it wasn't just, I was eating shit and I was drinking lots of caffeine, not sleeping well. Like I wasn't prioritizing. And I remember I looked at it and I remember I had this moment where I almost cried in my car looking at the account. And I was like, damn, this was supposed to make me happy. Like this pursuit of hitting this goal was supposed to be the pinnacle. But what they didn't tell me was don't burn all the other areas of your life to the ground to get it. Now for some that still might make them happy. But for a guy like me, it was a huge reality check that I'm like, okay, money is important. I do have big goals. Money is opportunity. I am not one to sit here and say money doesn't matter because it absolutely matters. And it gives me more ability to give back too when I have more money and it provided life for my kid but it can't be all that matters for a guy like me. And I've been stuck in those masterminds too, where all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit, I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more. And it's like, no, you're on the right trajectory. At what expense do I have to do more? I start weighing back and forth. Like, you know, and so I've absolutely fallen into that trap, especially with money. And, and there's a few other things. Like I went through a little sports gambling phase and I, about six months in, I realized this is not work for people like you. You're not sane about this. The guy told me, don't bet on your own team. And so I kept betting on my own team. Like it was just this toxic relationship. I thought going to a bad point and I was like, okay, that's enough for me. I got to stop. So, you know, I, I've seen it show up in different ways. It's been very interesting as I, I look over 10 years to kind of examine, I'm sure you probably can relate to some of that. Like at what point is it worth winning if I'm ruining this and I'm realizing, okay, I want financial goals, but I'm not willing to sacrifice X, Y, and Z. I'm not willing to sacrifice time with my kid. Like I have some standards now and that I'm not willing to budge on in order to increase that or increase this. And that's really helped me. Yeah, you're right, man, because like success can be like super addictive and so can money and so can like this pursuit of more that we often see in the personal development world, right? Because it's, it's around us all the time based on who we're spending time with, who we're following and not that it's necessarily always a bad thing because that very thing I think is what pushes us to be successful and to become better versions of ourselves. But if we're not careful, especially people who have like the tendencies to become addicted to things, I mean, that can just become an obsession where that becomes like your new addiction and religion is just to constantly focus on that. You mentioned being a dad, and I think it would just be to bring things back full circle. I know you talked about like your family like cut you off in the midst of your addiction. I've heard you talk about like one of the worst things for your addiction was when your parent, your family discovered Al-Anon and they, they realized that they couldn't enable you or be codependent and that wasn't going to help you with your problems. And now you're a dad and you've mentioned that you've you know healed the relationship with your mom. There's a lot of parents that listen to my podcast and I know there's no silver bullet answer, but you've been, you're now on both sides in the sense where you now are a dad. I mean, I know obviously your, your kid isn't addicted to drugs, but you have that part of you now. And then you've also been the kid who has been the person who has had the damaged relationship with parents in the midst of addiction. Like if you had like 30 seconds with a parent that maybe DM'd you or you ran into you in a coffee shop and just, just said, hey, like, listen, my kid is just addicted to drugs. I don't know what to do. What are a few thoughts you'd share with them? You know, always remind them that they're loved. Now, listen, you know, my story was that I didn't get sober until my parents pulled out that pillow from underneath me, meaning I would about to hit rock bottom and they would just, because they loved me, they would put this pillow. So the cushion would just hit a little softer again, like, a, and they were trying their best. But when they ripped that pillow out and were like, 
you got to hit this bottom. I hit rock bottom, and then I found the basement that I didn't know existed. I was like, oh, there's another, there's a, there's a cellar down here. <laughs> so I always tell parents, my parents did the best they could. Now, my mother almost loved me to death. She was an extreme enabler. My dad put in boundaries way before my mother. My mom was going to love me to death, literally, into the grave. And when she put in those boundaries is when shit got really hard for me. And that's when I finally, finally found, now, finally found sobriety. Now, that doesn't mean that's everyone's story. I'll tell parents that would DM me sometimes, like, asking me for advice. Like, we've tried this, we've tried this. And I said, if it feels like you're trying much harder for them to stay sober than they are, then you probably need to pull back. You know, for years, my parents were trying harder at me getting into recovery than I was trying to be in recovery. And that is a dead end game. And so it was the hardest thing my parents have to do. We've had some candid conversations about just saying, you're not allowed around here. Don't call anymore. And they were worried every night they were going to get a call that, Hey, we found your son. He's dead. It was so hard for him, but they knew that after countless attempt, they tried and I wouldn't try. And so I, I tell parents like, let them know they're loved even if you're going to put in boundaries. But the second you feel like you've been trying harder than they have, that might be time to let them find their own path. And I know it seems scary, but honestly, my mom enabling me and continuing to give me money when I was sick because I needed to get food, but I would only take cash from her. She knew what she was doing, was going to kill me much quicker than her letting me go. And so if you're trying harder, it's the hardest thing. But my parents, if they didn't do that, I wouldn't be here today. So... That's some solid advice, man. And I think that's a great way for us to end our combo. So Brad, I wanted to once again, thank you for coming on the podcast. I think people are going to really connect with what you had to say in your message and your story. If people want to follow along your journey, if they want to listen to your podcast, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, I'm hanging out on Instagram the most at the sober bodybuilder, all one word. You can find me on there. And then my podcast is the key nutrition podcast where we kind of one stop shop for all things, health, the mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. No, no coincidence. That's just what we kind of talked about here. So you'll hear everything from a lot of fitness content to spiritual stuff, to emotional, mental health. We've had therapists on, we've, you know, it's pretty well-versed show. So those are the two best places to find me. And, and the, our website is keynutrition.com. So Amazing, man. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Brad shared at the beginning of our conversation about what he would have done differently at the beginning of his recovery journey. Maybe it was something that he said when he was sharing his incredible and inspirational story from start to finish of how he found addiction, what that path looked like, and then how he finally got sober and turned his life around. Or maybe it was something that he shared about his path of recovery and how he has managed to stay sober for a decade and transform himself personally, professionally, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Whatever the takeaway was, tag Brad, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopst. We'll see you next time.